everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, a weekly half hour of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important in our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. I live in Joshua Tree, and I'm very pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. I hope you all had a very, very, very merry, merry Christmas. And although Christmas has come and gone, we have not yet exhausted the festivals and rituals and mythological moments of this time of year. Now, last week, I talked about the meaning of the solstice. And the solstice is significant because it's a turning point in the sort of cosmic conversation between the sun and the earth the lightness and darkness. And I I talked about the metaphor of light and how we connect it in our imaginations to ideas of renewal and redemption. These are the heart of the spiritual themes of Christmas, the Yuletide, the solstice, and other holidays and celebrations at this time of year that are happening across cultures, and have been happening across time. Now, there's two things that I hope that you realize about this time of year, and it was part of our solstice conversation, but I'm going to bring it forward here. One is that this time of year is an opportunity to begin again, to restore harmony and goodwill. Now, I find this very encouraging because we have all been debating the nature of human nature now for centuries, and it's true that people are flawed, and as a species, we do struggle to do the right thing, and it's important that we not kid ourselves, but when you look at what we aspire to, that people around the world are celebrating and encouraging themselves towards generosity and goodwill, Well, I think that says something very important about who and what we are. The second thing that I would like to focus your attention on is the way that the holidays at this time of year tie us to mythological ideas and realities. We supposedly live in a mythless time, and our relationship to things that we call myths now and religious ideas and beliefs certainly is different than it has been at other times in human history. That said, we really can't live without mythologizing our experiences. And even more to the point, mythological ideas are at the root of many of the things, the conventions that we share that provide the container or the structure that we live in. New Year's is a great example of this because New Year's we have the aspirations and the theme of renewal, which belongs to this time of year, with the added component of time, time and the calendar. These are important human inventions and they're so central to the way that we live that we can't even imagine being without them. And they are tied to mythological ideas, 
ideas about order and the relationship between human order, religious and civil, and the cosmic order. Now, when we think of New Year's, we're obviously thinking that a new year is starting, but for many of us, the idea of renewal and refreshment and starting over again is purely personal. It takes the form of our New Year's resolutions, that we're going to go on a diet or we're going to you know, go to the gym or get our finances in order or whatever it is. But if you go back to the roots of a celebration of the new year, what you find is the idea that the world itself in time is recreated and refreshed. At the time of the new year, the entire world is being reborn. That's the reason that the baby is one of the symbols of the new year. This idea that the world itself is born anew is particularly powerful in Native American mythologies. But as part of the idea of other cultures, including the Babylonians, who were the first, as far as we know, to celebrate the new year, that was 4,000 years ago, and the Romans, which is where we get most of our ideas about the new year. The fact that we celebrate New Year's on January 1st ties us very tightly to the early Roman civilizations. And I want to explain to you a little bit more about how that works. This historical story begins with the quest for an accurate calendar. Now first ask yourself why we would even care about an accurate calendar. Why do we even want a calendar? This is rooted in the belief that human earthly activities and the order that we create here on earth, that we establish, takes place within a larger cosmic order and needs to be properly aligned with it. The ancients had a saying, as above, so below. And that's what we're talking about here. And this can be found in our belief that there's a right time for something. So the quest for an accurate calendar was a quest laden with tremendous significance. Back in the earliest times, New Year's was often celebrated at the advent of spring. We know that many, many civilizations used the solstice as the beginning of their new year. We also know that many civilizations used a day in March, generally the spring equinox, as their new year. And this was a function of what people could observe, what people could see happening. So spring makes a lot of logical sense. It also makes a certain amount of astronomical sense because the spring equinox is a place where the length of the days and the nights comes temporarily back into balance. The days and the nights are equally long. Well, so how did we end up with this January 1st thing? Here the Romans play a really big role. The early Roman calendar designated March 1st as the new year, and the calendar then only had 10 months. It was connected to a lunar cycle, 
And many calendars around the world were moon calendars, the cycle of the moon being something that was easily observable. The thing about moon cycles, though, is that they don't line up with solar cycles. The relationship between the sun and the earth was given precedence, the solar cycle being regular over a longer period of time and making it easier to have set days of the week and holidays and festivals that happened at essentially exactly the same time every year. So the solar cycle then was seen to contain the lunar cycle, though the notion of the lunar cycle is still very much a part of our idea of months. The question then being, how many months do we need and how many days should there be in a month? So the quest became the search for an accurate solar calendar. That is one that accurately reflected the relationship between the sun and the earth over the course of what we now call a year. The solstice is a solar holiday, and so is New Year's. The early Roman calendar designated March as the New Year, and at that time the calendar just had 10 months beginning with March. So March 1st was the New Year's. And if you've ever wondered why are the months of September, October, November, December, which refer to septo, seven, octo, eight, novum, nine, decim, ten, you know, how it is that those months are named for numbers that don't actually correspond to their place in the 12-month sequence, that's the reason. January and February were later added on to the front, and their addition to the calendar to make it a 12-month calendar was part of this process of coming up with an accurate calendar. A number of calendars were in use, and one of the jobs of the emperor or the king, the authority in any given civilization, was the maintenance and the refinement of the calendar, because These calendars, in particular the lunar calendars, ultimately fell out of sequence with the sun. In 46 BC, Julius Caesar introduced a new solar-based calendar that was an improvement on the earlier Roman lunar calendar. And when he did that, he decreed that the new year was going to start with January 1st, and that became the new year. One of the reasons that Julius Caesar picked January 1st was to honor the Roman god Janus, who was the god of new beginnings. Janus had two faces, one face that allowed him to look back into the past and another that allowed him to look forward into the future. Now, for a lot of the world that was controlled by the Roman Empire then, January 1st was the new year. But later on, uh, certainly by medieval times, Christian leadership had replaced January 1st with days that they felt had more religious significance. January 1st was thought to be a pagan holiday, and so there was a while when the Christian world celebrated New Year's on either December 25th, because it was the anniversary of Jesus' birth, or March 25th, 
the Feast of the Annunciation, when Jesus goes back up to heaven. But then you flash forward to 1582, I guess it was, yes, and Pope Gregory reestablished January 1st as New Year's Day because he, again, reformed the calendar. So, again, he was an authority and he's taking charge of the calendar. And why is he doing that? Because the, the time order here on earth needs to be operating in conjunction with cosmic time and times of cosmic, religious, mythological significance. Now, a lot of the Catholic countries at that time adopted that, that calendar almost immediately, but it took a while for it to be adopted around the world. And in fact, the British Empire, and that includes then the American colonies and the United States, didn't accept the Gregorian calendar until 1752. So if you can imagine, yes, indeed, there was a time when the world was not all on the same calendar. The calendar that you lived under was more than a method for marking time. The calendar that you lived under reflected the authority, earthly authority, that you were willing to live under and that earthly authority's view of the larger cosmic order. Now, if this all seems very archaic and beside the point to you, I'd like to suggest that that's simply because we are so firmly ensconced in the Gregorian solar calendar. It'd be interesting to see what would happen if somebody came forward now and proposed that we mark time based on the cycles of the Earth and Mars, for example. I have no idea how that would work, but I think it would kick up some very interesting questions about the nature of the cosmos and what our relationship is to it. Now, I want to continue to talk about the Romans just a little bit. One of their most famous poets, Ovid, wrote a poem called the Fausti about the Roman calendar. And you may recognize the name Ovid because he was the author of the Metamorphosis, which is probably his most important work. And in the Fausti, Ovid discusses the Roman calendar in chronological order, starting with January. Now, I think it's really interesting that he only got through June. <laughs> so, apparently the experience of running out of time is not a purely modern convention. Uh, either he only got through June or we lost the last six months. But historical records, what's left behind, suggest that he didn't ever get the second half of the year finished. Now, there were three threads kind of weaving through Ovid's poem about the calendar. One of them is historical. He tells the legends of Rome. Another one is astronomical. He describes the rising and the setting of constellations at various points throughout the year. And the third is religious. He explains the festivals and the rites on their respective dates. And as I've been saying, the ability to set these festival and holiday dates at the right times, to celebrate the right things at the right time, and generally to 
conduct human affairs in concert with the cosmic order is the impulse that lies behind our calendars and calendar time. Now, we're not always sure where Ovid got all of his information, but in general, he, this poem is considered to be a very valuable and reliable source of information about Roman life at the time. So, there are a few things I want to point out about his poem. The first thing is that he dedicated the poem to the emperor. New Year's is intended to bring civil authority into line with cosmic authority. So, of course, he dedicates a poem about the calendar to the emperor, to the chief earthly civil authority. So, of course, he starts with January, and in the January part, the poet describes a visitation from the god Janus, the two-faced god. And Janus tells him that the ancients originally called him Chaos. So, there we see the new year as a place where the world is born, right? Where order is re-emerging. So Janus, who is on the threshold, looking forward, looking back, is associated with the moment when order emerges from chaos. Now, the fact that he sees things coming and going connects him to thresholds and to doorways. And these are thresholds in time, past and present, There are also thresholds between the realms. So Janus can also see into the human world and also into the divine realm that is behind it. And just note that we have, when people die, one of the things that we say is that they've crossed over, right? This goes back to this old idea of a threshold, a threshold existing between these realms. So in Ovid's poem, he describes his visitation that he has from Janus, and he asks the god a series of questions. The first thing he asks Janus is, why is the New Year's in the winter when it's cold and not in the spring, when new life is clearly, you know, visible? And Janus tells him that midwinter is the new year because that is the beginning of the new sun. So here we have the solar aspect. And then Ovid asks Janus about the nature of their celebrations. He says, why do we honor and give gifts to you first, Janus, in Roman religious practice before any other gods received their sacrifices or prayers, a nod was given to Janus. And Janus says, it's because it is through me that you access all of the other gods. So here's this notion of threshold between the two realms. Ovid then asks about the type of gifts and prayers that they give. Now, apparently, the Romans gave sweets to the gods at this time of year. And Janus explains that because you're at a threshold time, which is also a liminal time, and he's there, you know, opening the doorway for conversation between the gods and the human realms, it's important that you give gifts that reflect the nature of what you'd like in return. So you give sweets, like dates, Janice says, so that your year will be sweet. Well, so in this context, then, Ovid asks, why do we give the gift of money, Janice? Well, hello, (laughs) 
the answer that Janice gives is very similar, perhaps, to the answer we would give. Tellingly, Janice says, almost everybody finds money sweet now, don't they? This has been true for a very, very, very long time. And he goes on to tell Ovid that wealth has become the highest value in Roman culture. It used not to be, he says, it used not to be a crime or a shame to be poor, but now it is. Now it is most important to be wealthy. Yes, this poem was written thousands of years ago, but I hope you can hear the echoes. The wealthy, he says, strive to gain what they waste, and they try and get more and more and more and more and more to feed their vices. So this is why money is what's offered to me at this time of year. Ovid then goes on to ask about the coins that are offered. Why is there a ship stamped on one side of our coins and a two-faced figure on the other, he asks. And Jana says, well, obviously the two-faced figure is me. The threshold. The threshold in time and the threshold between realms. And the ship on the other side commemorates the arrival of the god Saturn, who was known to the Greeks as Cronus. Saturn came here to Rome when Zeus kicked him out of heaven. Saturn, that is Kronos, is also known as Father Time. So if you've ever wondered about the saying that time is money, maybe we can find a root of that idea here in the symbology of these Roman coins. Now I've been talking about time and the calendar and the Romans in particular, because they gave us January 1st, so that you can see that even New Year's is tied to mythological ideas, ideas that we have so thoroughly adopted and integrated that we no longer recognize their mythological significance. It's my hope that as you approach the New Year and you consider how you are going to reorder your life, if you are inclined to resolutions, that you also consider order in its larger sense of our civil order and also our cosmic order. One of the messages of mythology is how to be in right relationship to things that links this holiday to Christmas and the solstice and others of this time where we think about what it will take to restore goodwill and harmony on planet Earth. Now let's leave Ovid and the ancient Romans. Let's set them aside for the time being and see if we can find any of these themes or ideas in a more contemporary form. You know, when I was thinking about Janus and this idea that he was the threshold, for some reason that led me to think about portals and wormholes and places where there's a break in time, in space. And that led me to remember a story that I loved when I was a kid called A Wrinkle in Time. So I want to talk about that a little bit because the the beautiful sort of meshing of this science fiction story written for children in the early 60s with the 
themes I've been working in this program are just kind of blows my mind. And it starts with how this book was published. So apparently the author, Madeline Lengel, had a really, really hard time getting this book published. She was rejected by at least 26 publishers. And in the story that she has given about how this book came into being, she says that various publishers rejected it because they said it was too different, because it dealt too directly with the problem of evil, that it was going to be too hard for kids to read, but it was too simple for adults. And also because the protagonist was a girl. And everybody knows that the heroes of science fiction stories are supposed to be boys. She was about to give up. Her agent returned the manuscript to her. It was Christmas time. And Lengel decided to throw a tea party for her mother. One of the guests just so happened to know John C. Farrer of Farrer, Strauss, and Giroux, the publisher, and insisted that Lengel should meet with him. So although this publishing house did not handle children's books at the time, they met, and he really liked the author, and he liked the novel, and ultimately published it. And it has never gone out of print since then. So we have this book called A Wrinkle in Time, being born out of a wrinkle in time, and emerging to offer us something new. Now let's take a look at the story itself. The story begins with the line, quote, It was a dark and stormy night, end quote. So we know that we're in a mythological time. <laughs> we're in a story that could be happening at any point, a story that's always happening. And there's a 14-year-old named Meg, who is the heroine of the story, and she is unable to sleep, and she goes down to the kitchen and finds her younger brother sitting there drinking milk and eating bread and jam. And then their mother comes, and they're visited by a ne- an eccentric neighbor named Mrs. Whatsit. And in the course of this conversation, Mrs. Whatsit mentions that there is such a thing as a tesseract. Now, Meg's father is a scientist, as is her mother, And he disappeared mysteriously some time ago while he was working on a project that involved a tesseract. There's some question about whether or not even such a thing existed, but here there is confirmation. So Meg then decides to follow up on this, and the rest of the story involves the way that Meg and her brother, with the assistance of several women, Mrs. Whatsit, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Witch, um recover first her father and then her brother. Because she goes through this tesseract, or this wrinkle, wrinkle in time and space, Meg is able to see the earth in the context of the cosmic struggle between good and evil. So here we are in this story dealing with these themes of order and proper relationship. Now, evil in this story is a mechanical way of being. It's a complete conformity. The beings on this other planet uh, that's attacking the earth, the sort of evil that wants to take, that wants to colonize the earth too, 
is a situation where everything seems to be perfectly fine and great and everybody has what they need, but they're all under the control of a single mind. There's not individuality. There's not eccentricity. And so it's boring. It's a kind of death. Now, I I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but Meg's answer to this problem involves a restoration of order. It involves a restoration of order on the personal level because she brings her father and her younger brother back to the family. So her family is united. And it hints at a new cosmic order because the solution that Meg brings to her problems is love. Love for individuals. Love being the thing that is missing in this mechanical alternative. And let that be the final word in our mythological conversation for the year 2013. I'm going to start 2014 with a rerun, ironically enough. Um, The next couple of weeks will be a replay of the story that I told of Prometheus in Greek mythology. I hope you enjoy it. Happy, happy, happy new year. If you have questions about today's program or mythology in general, you can find Myth in the Mojave on Facebook or feel free to email me at mythicmojo at gmail.com. Special thanks to Travis Rosenberg for my theme music and to you for listening. Please tune in next week. And in the meantime, happy mythmaking and keep the mystery and the love in your life alive.